This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 190, Time Travel. I'm Hal Hammonds, and I am a Citizen of Heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in this week. We've all fantasized about being able to go back in time and correct past wrongs, or go forward and escape current hardships. Current technology will not allow either, though, and I, for one, am glad. This week, we will discuss how to live in the world we've made for ourselves or was made for us, the folly of asking John F. Kennedy to fix the world, how the grandfather paradox doesn't negate time travel and why it doesn't matter, and a new politically correct look at an old favorite. We'll start with what I've been preaching. Our lives today are built on the remains of the mistakes we made in our past. Our future lives will be built on the remains of how we dealt with those mistakes. How's that for some amateur philosophy this fine day? Seriously, though, they say we learn more from our mistakes than from our successes, and I know that to be true from personal experience. Therefore, the world we have made for ourselves today is at least as much a product of our failures as of our successes. That's why I balk at the whole would-you-do-it-differently line of thinking. The bottom line is, I can't go back in time. What happened, happened. My task is to find a way to grow. My ability to do exactly that is why I am where I am today. My success in marriage is a direct result of my disastrous dating life. My best lessons for my children are rooted in stories of my own mistakes. My ability to survive one mistake is directly and materially responsible for my ability to avoid the next one, or at least survive it with fewer negative consequences. I remind myself of this every time my daughter and her husband make what seem to be questionable financial decisions. Tracy and I did it too. Better learn the lesson childless in your 20s than a decade later with far more on the line. The scars of our mistakes can produce wonderful things. We likely don't appreciate that much in the moment, but we will further down the line. David should not have acted the way he did regarding Uriah and Bathsheba, but we would not have Psalm 51 if he had not. Paul should not have acted as the chief of sinners, as he describes his life before knowing Jesus in 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 through 16. But if he had not, perhaps he would have been less motivated to endure hardship himself. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, he calls it, in Philippians 3, verse 13. Speaking of what lies ahead, it's easy to dream of a time machine that will take us out of what may seem to be unbearable circumstances and drop us in a time and place that presumably will be better. But put a heavy underscore on the word presumably there. If your faith is in technology and its ability to make our lives even more comfortable, I think the last century or two has given you ample reason to believe things will continue to improve. But I don't think mere comfort is what we want. That's why you may be eager to escape your era of air conditioning, wireless internet, and frozen pizza. No, we're looking for something much deeper than mere comfort, more spiritual, And our culture seems to be getting worse by the day at providing that. The psalmist warns us against trusting in the latest technological development in Psalm 20, verse 7. He writes, Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. When we put our trust in the timeless God who created us, we feel no need to escape to some unseen future here on earth. The only future that concerns us is in heaven. And fretting about that won't hasten the day by a single hour. Paul gives us some great encouragement in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. 
He writes, And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who was given to us. The more connected we get to God through the Spirit today, the greater our hope will grow, not a hope in erasing the past or shaping the future, but our hope that He will continue to keep us company through it all, and ultimately usher us into the fulfillment of the greatest hope of all. This is what I've been reading. I'm planning to produce a housekeeping episode sometime during season four, perhaps a season finale, perhaps around New Year's, in which I will discuss the way the podcast has changed over almost 200 weeks now, why I'm doing some things differently, and some clarification about how content gets created. If I do, I'll likely want to discuss my treatment of books, especially fiction books, and why I generally avoid the word recommend. But since I'm talking about the only Stephen King book I've ever read this week, maybe it's fitting to get some of that out of the way now. To wit, I am officially opposed to profanity in books and in entertainment in general. If I've given you the idea that it was safe somehow to read a book I've discussed here, and then you read it yourself and decided otherwise, I apologize. It's an ugly world out there, and the entertainment the world gives us will be ugly too, most likely. Decide for yourself how much is too much. Me, I will continue to offer comment on what I read, always taking reasonable precautions to steer clear of the truly nasty stuff. And that brings me to 11.22.63. Mr. King has a bit of a reputation regarding language, and I am not a big horror fan anyway, so it's been pretty easy for me to steer clear of his work over the years. But when I heard he had written a book about traveling back in time to save President Kennedy, I decided to give it a shot. And it was everything I hoped and feared it would be. A great story told extremely well, and yes, with way too much bad language. But enough about that. The book tells a story about a man who was convinced that the Kennedy assassination set the stage for further killings in the 1960s, the Watergate debacle, the malaise of the 1970s, and basically everything that's gone wrong in America for the last 50 years. And he stumbles onto an opportunity to actually travel back through time and stop Lee Harvey Oswald from doing the deed. And yes, it was Oswald who pulled the trigger, both in the book and in real life, but don't get me started on that. After a great deal of effort and many failed attempts, he finally succeeds. He breathes a heavy sigh of relief and heads back to his previous life, only to realize he has not made things better at all. In fact, the world is a wasteland, far, far worse than the one he'd left behind. It's been a few years since I read the books. I'm fuzzy on some of the details. The long and short of it is this. Time does not travel along predictable pathways. We do not know what the future will hold, no matter how carefully we plan it. It's very easy to assume the current problems are somehow a worst-case scenario, directly attributable to a particular act by a particular person or group. The truth is almost certainly that both of these statements are false. It can always get worse, despite what you may have heard during election cycles. And the causes for your hardships are likely far more complicated and numerous. In fact, we're likely to blame our problems on presidents and foreign powers, at least in part, because we know down deep inside that we are far more responsible for our own situation than we would like to admit. But regardless of where the blame is placed or where it properly lies, the entire concept of fixing the world is flawed at its core. 
Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 7.10, Do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. Solomon didn't say whether we were just flat out wrong in praising the past, or whether it was a waste of time and effort to compare the past and the present at all. I suspect both are usually true. The world is ugly, and has been since the fall. And I don't mean the fall of 2022. I mean the fall from God's grace in the garden. Comparing today's particular shade of ugly brown to yesterday's doesn't accomplish much, if you ask me. And I'll throw in a word about hero worship while we're on the subject. Heroes, especially dead ones, take on a sort of glow. JFK could have stopped the Vietnam War in its tracks, gotten us to the moon years ahead of schedule, and spoken at the inauguration of President Martin Luther King Jr. in 1969. Or maybe he would have gotten us all blown up in another Cuban Missile Crisis-type episode. He was a man, pure and simple, plenty of strengths, plenty of weaknesses, no different from any of the rest of us, and for that matter, no different than our Bible heroes. Hebrews 11 can read like a rogues gallery instead of the Faith Hall of Fame if you're feeling cynical on any given day. That's why we keep our heads about us when considering the merits of our fellow human beings. Yes, imitate me as I imitate Christ, to borrow from Paul in 1 Corinthians 11.1, but mainly, imitate Christ. That is a hero who only gets more heroic as we dig deeper. This is what I've been hearing. The grandfather paradox works in one of two ways in quantum physics. One, you travel back in time. Somehow your grandfather dies before he meets your grandmother and you vanish from existence. Two, you travel back in time, you meet your future grandmother before she meets your future grandfather. One thing leads to another, and you become your own ancestor. Both of these scenarios require a logical impossibility. Therefore, they cannot be true. It's a fancy version of Doc Brown's paranoiac rantings in Back to the Future. There's no telling what sort of ripples you might put in the pond when you mess with the space-time continuum. The grandfather paradox is just one of many reasons why I don't believe time travel exists or ever will exist. If you happen to be a time traveler and you're listening to this podcast, it's probably best that you don't tell me about it, both for my ego and for the safety of the universe as we know it. I can't wrap my mind around the idea of the same person or the same atom, as far as that goes, existing in two places at the same time. If a butterfly can flap its wings in China and then change the weather in New York, as quantum physicists insist it can, how much more so if the butterfly came from 20 years in the future? In preparation for this segment, I researched the grandfather paradox. And by that, I mean I did a Google search and clicked on the first article I saw. As it happens, it was from Space.com, written by Greg Uyeno. And Greg, if you're listening, I apologize for butchering your name. I read three or four paragraphs, and then I read something that stopped me in my tracks. It read as follows. But contradictions such as the grandfather paradox don't mean that time travel is impossible. The logical consistency of time travel largely depends on the concept of time, and physicists have many different ways of conceptualizing time. I literally stopped in my tracks. I'm not sure I even finished reading that sentence. Have you ever come to a sudden and inescapable conclusion about yourself that caused you to rethink an entire segment of your podcast? Well, anyway, it happened to me. I suddenly realized I was assuming I was in a position to judge whether the laws of physics would permit a certain activity with which I am mostly aware through films and comic books. 
And keep in mind, I almost failed physics in high school, and that was when I was actually studying physics. You notice me commenting on physics textbooks in the What I've Been Reading segment recently, or ever? Didn't think so. You don't have to dig deep into the laws of gravity, thermodynamics, energy conservation, and relativity to realize that the world we inhabit is a pretty complicated place. Are we really going to try to assert that we know everything about it? You'd make a better case trying to argue we don't know anything about it. Every time the chemists, biologists, geologists, physicists, and all the otherists get the world sorted out, another generation comes along that proves them all wrong. That's not to say that scientific inquiry is a waste of time. I'm all in favor of the pursuit of knowledge. But for me, I am prepared to acknowledge that we will never understand it in its fullest. I just need to be reminded of that from time to time. I was thinking of Agur, son of Jaka, the oracle, who was recruited to contribute to the book of Proverbs. Imagine the sort of reputation for wisdom and understanding you would have to have for the wisest men in the world to come to you for your advice. And I love his first words. In Proverbs 30, verses 2 and 3, we read, Surely I am more stupid than any man, and I do not have the understanding of a man. Neither have I learned wisdom, nor do I have knowledge of the Holy One. I can imagine Solomon coming to Agur to write his Proverbs, and Agur responds, okay, I'll do it, but I have to start with how stupid I really am. And Solomon laughs and says, I knew you were the man for the job. Start writing. Humans have limitations built in. Again, I have no problem exploring the limits of those limitations, but the closer you get to those limitations, the closer you get to God, the ultimate cause of all things, the ultimate answer for all questions. The problem is, We get used to coming up with our own answers, and we forget that. It's like Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 and 19. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. God wants us to learn all we can about the world he gave us, but he wants us to have that knowledge so we will be compelled to turn to him in awe and gratitude. As David writes in Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him? and the Son of Man, that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I wanted to touch on our attitude toward God's word specifically while we're on this subject. When Agur wrote about not having knowledge of the Holy One, I don't think he was saying he did not know much about God and he was serving him out of ignorance. I think he was meaning that God transcends knowledge, and the only way we can know him is by listening to him tell us about himself. And it just stands to reason that a being that transcends our understanding is going to call on us to act in faith from time to time. If he wants to explain his actions and requirements, I'm glad to listen, but he is under no obligation to do so. And often he will not do so. You and I have to learn to be okay with that. 
I may go the rest of my life without fully comprehending how the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, to use John 1.14 as an example. I may come up with a way of describing it that works for me. You may have a slightly different one that works for you. But if you or I ever get to the point where we are explaining exactly what God did and how He did it, we need to take a step back. We are utterly incapable of understanding God's things fully. It is arrogant and probably blasphemous to say otherwise. It's okay. If God weren't bigger than us, we wouldn't be worshiping Him in the first place. Stay in your lane. It may not feed your ego to admit you're not God, but better that than incurring the wrath of the one who truly is God. This is what I've been playing. Mombasa, designed by Alexander Pfister, is one of my all-time favorite games. I discussed it in the podcast in the first few months. It's about European companies moving into the continent of Africa in the days of colonialism, exploiting the land and its people for natural resources, running roughshod over anyone and anything in their way, and making as much money for themselves and their investors as possible in the process. Over the years, it has received a great deal of pushback in the gaming community. It celebrates exploitation, they say. It glorifies the pursuit of wealth at the expense of indigenous peoples, all that business. I argued at the time that although I do not support armed robbery writ large, I do not personally feel while playing Mombasa that I am exploiting anyone, either present or past. My position remains unchanged. I do not feel guilty about playing a game based on a historical narrative, even though parts of that narrative can be construed as objectionable. I still love Mombasa, and frankly, I'm annoyed how long it's been since Tracy and Kylie have given me the usual beating I get while playing this game. Again, why is it that I am drawn to games that I always lose? Anyway, I bring it up today because Mr. Fister's recent game called Sky Mines is essentially a re-implementation of Mombasa, minus all the politically incorrect stuff. Instead of Africa, you're exploring the moon. No indigenous peoples there, at least not for the purposes of this game. Maybe we'll find moon people out there one of these days, and Mr. Fister will have to make his game all over again, but that's a problem for another day. Sky Mines adds a couple of new twists to the game. It replaces the clear and attractive artwork with new artwork that is less clear and less attractive, but as best I can tell, it follows the original game very closely, to the point where we felt there would be no point in having both. So I'm left with a quandary. Keep the game I already own, or spend $60 to buy the new one. Hal Hammonds, famous tightwad, remember me? I think we'll just stick with Mombasa. Thank you very much. I hope I'm not coming across as dismissive with regard to the suffering of other humans, either in the past, on another continent, or in my own neighborhood right now. I'm not. If I could go back in time and change things, I would. At least I hope I would try. But I can't go back in time. And if I could go back in time, I couldn't change things. And if I could change things, to go back to a previous segment for a moment... The world that came out on the other side might not be as ideal as we would like. Face it, we're whiners. We want the world to be perfect, and it isn't. It never has been, and it never will be. By the way, I've played plenty of games that are set in feudal Europe, and they're all about what's going on with the noble class. After all, who wants to play a game about villagers being eaten by wolves or trampled underfoot by knights' warhorses? Those games exploit European peasants as much as Mombasa exploits African peasants. And that's not to say that either was okay. It's to say the world has always been a difficult place to live for the overwhelming majority of its citizens, and that continues to be the case even today. 
It's tough for suburbanite Americans eating Toblerone at the family game table to appreciate that, but it's true. Jesus said it himself in John 12, verse 8, You always have the poor with you. I fear the current trend of erasing the embarrassing aspects of our past is, in the mind of the Reconstructionists, the next best thing to a time machine. If we can't change the past, let's just ignore the ugly parts. But it is by looking at ugliness that we learn how to improve. James tells us to look into the mirror in James 1, verses 23 and 24, not to find self-affirmation, not to confirm that we're prettier than the next girl, but rather to find flaws to fix. If we reduce slave owners, robber barons, and Indian killers to farcical straw men, we will continue to ignore the root cause of evil in this world. And spoiler alert, the root cause is not capitalism or toxic masculinity or racism, although all of those may be ways the real root cause manifests itself. No, the real root cause is sin. It always has been. Humans of every socioeconomic strata, every skin color, every national origin, every age of time, were all the same. We all sin and fall short of God's glory. And one more bit to chew on before we go. Do you think it's possible that the big bad guys of the past, or the present either for that matter, might not be entirely evil? Maybe Columbus was genuinely concerned about the souls of the native tribesmen he found in America. Maybe English tea planters really wanted to bring a higher standard of living to the peasants of India. Maybe today's makers of clothes and cell phones think poor people in Singapore or Indonesia would rather support their family on $5 a day than starve with them back on the farm. Think long and hard about criticizing people you don't know for making decisions you don't understand involving people you've never met in places you've never been. Reducing the level of hatred, bigotry, and meanness in the world is always a noble goal. If you want to be part of the solution, God bless you for that. Just make sure you start by cleaning your own house. You've been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.halhammonds.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.